You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 115 for Monday the 14th of May 2018. My guest today is Claire Sager, a lifelong fantasy reader, former English teacher and corsetier. Her fate was set the day her father gave her a Dragonlance graphic novel. After that, there was no hope for her to be anything other than a speculative fiction author. When she's not writing, she can be found reading, role-playing or gaming. She lives in Nottingham, which is Robin Hood country, of course, so it's no surprise that she writes about a character who robs from the rich to give to the poor. Claire has been a long-time listener to this podcast and has posted several images to Twitter showing the progress of her wedding dress as she catches up with weekly episodes. She's recently just got married, by the way, and the dress is now completed. When we spoke for the podcast, I started by asking her what that first book, Dragonlance, sparked off in her from a creative point of view. So there are a series of books that were out, I want to say, in maybe the 70s and 80s. Um, so, yeah, the Dragonlance books, anyone who's into fantasy will probably have read them or heard of them at least. Uh, they're one of those ones that's um, got a massive section in the, on, the, on the shelves in the bookshops. And, um, yeah, I think it was – they're books that are sort of written um, – in conjunction with things like D&D and stuff like that. So there's very much a a world that was already built there and it's very much like a Tolkien-inspired world. So you had your elves who lived in the woods and, um, and were excellent at archery and so on and very graceful. You've got your dwarves who live in mines and work stone and things like that. So there was um, a very real feeling world behind it, I think, was part of it. And they also were very clever in that they had this kind of ensemble cast, if you like, like a classic uh, role-playing or D&D, Dungeons & Dragons party. So, you know, you had the cleric, you had the knight, all that sort of thing. Um, and there were a few, you know, particularly in that time, you know, I was only a kid and I probably was too young to be reading those books, but a lot of things adventurous type tv programs and books there was a token female you know like Mm. it's all the guys who do the thing and then there's the one female character but these actually had i mean i'm not saying how to uh sort of feminist icons as their female characters but there were you know a good handful of females in there with the male characters whatever um species they were and uh yes i think it's kind of that combination of all of those aspects and it was good commercial fiction really that we you know we think of it now good genre fiction so i think that was a big part of it now i get mixed up with some of the terminology around this because this is not the area that i write in so Mm -hmm. i saw on your website that you you say that you write speculative fiction and then we're talking about fantasy here um Mm -hmm. what what, what do you mean by those terms because i they're not as i say i don't write in them so i don't really Mm. have a grasp on them well to me speculative fiction and certainly i've seen a couple of slightly different definitions the definition i'm going off of is actually you do write speculative fiction because it covers um 
fantasy, sci-fi, um, and things like alternate history as well. So it's anything where you're kind of spe- you're the world that you're writing in is not our real world. Oh, well, that's that's news to me. That's great. So I'm a speculative fiction writer as a sci-fi writer because it's a it, it's an imaginary world. It's a created one. It's not one that exists, even though I'm taking a real world and turning it into something weird. Yeah. Yeah. So like I was saying, there's, um, I have seen people come up with slightly different definitions to that, but that's the one I first read about speculative fiction. And, and to me, I kind of use it as a bit of an umbrella term because although I'm writing fantasy at the moment, I, d- I have some sci-fi ideas. Um, and I've also seen it, like I said, applied to alternate history. Um, there was a series out years ago now. I don't know if it was ever finished. I only read the first one, to be honest. Um, the first one's called Romanitas. And that was um, alternate history. It was um, kind of set in modernish day, but it was as, as if the Roman um, the Roman Empire had continued. So that would also fall under speculative fiction because they're sort of speculating on what the world would be like had the Romans stuck around and the empire not crumbled and so on. So that's another sort of aspect of it. Ooh, I've learned something already. There you go. See, so, <laughs> uh, and as far as fantasy is concerned, I always think that's elves, dragons, wizards, that sort of thing. Uh, that's that's one aspect of it. That's not what I write. Um, it is definitely what I spent a lot of my youth reading because I would say um, pre, I want to say mid to late 90s, that's probably the main type of fantasy that you'd find on the bookshelves like people like david eddings who um you know and the, like i said dragonlance forgotten realms was also by the same um company that did dragonlance um and those were all very tolkien inspired fantasy like you said with the elves and dragons and things like that but then kind of this new breed if you like of fantasy um sort of came up that, that did kind of harken back to some of the older writers like um of course my mind goes blank when i tried to think of them <laughs> I, um, I want to say fitz or fritz lieber sorry i might be forgetting that please don't uh no one come and get me for not being a true fantasy fan <laughs> <laughs> but, um, things where it was a um, an imaginary or made up world but you've your your stories may be as much about the uh social interactions and um and maybe you know magic and fantastical creatures don't play either play a limited part or no part at all really in the story but you're kind of using a uh, a different society that you've created to kind of have adventures and things like that so have you been immersed in this world of uh, D&D Dungeons and Dragons my oldest son's just got into it at university <laughs> uh, are, you, are you are you embroiled in all of that um, I do, I do role play, yeah, actually. Um, although I didn't when I was younger, I do play once a week now, um, and we sometimes do D and D. We some, at the moment we're playing a Star Wars based game, um, but yeah, that certainly came after the writing for me. But I think a lot of people do come at it the opposite way. You know, they get into, like you say, D and D or whatever. Maybe when they go to uni or school, and then they become writers from there. Whereas for me, it's actually the opposite way round. I kind of use it as a, uh, you know, obviously it's called a role play game, but it is a way for me to kind of play with characters and things like that. So it's sort of almost have it. It's, it's kind of you work together to tell a story, really. So it's a way for me to play with story without there being any pressure or 
um, for me to sort of focus on having a, an amazing finished thing. It's actually just playing around with what would, what would this character do in this situation. And then, so where does this fit in then with something that completely confuses me, uh, Lit RPG, which is presumably literary role-playing games. Is that right? Have I, have I got that right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've not written that and I've actually not read any. I might have, do you know, I might have read some when I was younger before it was really a thing, before it was its own defined genre. But yes, yeah, so a Lit RPG, I know John Cronshaw mm. has um, just finished working on a piece that I think is about to come out soon, isn't it? That's Lit RPG and that's, yeah, so it's literature that's based on RPGs, but it's usually where the person has either gone into the world of a computer game, which is... I understand it, what uh, Ready Player One um, involves or where I think sometimes they've had it where they sort of find themselves sucked into the world of an RPG like Dungeons and Dragons. Like I said, I've not really read any, but that's what I understand it to be. Mm, and so Tron probably would have been the original one, would it? I'm just trying to think back. Yeah, I think in a way, yeah. That's what I mean. It's like it has, that coin, that phrase has been coined recently, but I think it has been around a bit. I'm sure I read a, you know, a short kid story when I was much younger where, yeah, a boy got sucked into a video game or something like that. So I think that's probably sort of the forerunners of the genre that's a bit hot at the moment. Hey, it's a lot less complicated in thriller world, you know. It's just, <laughs> it, it, it's quite complicated, all of this, isn't it? As I say, it's helped me to just clarify some of those uh, yeah. types. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of different subgenres. So, I mean, I'd say I probably write more um, like historical fantasy or romantic fantasy than, like you said, sort of um, Tolkien-type fantasy. Um, so, yeah, they're all different subgenres to keep track of, definitely. Now, I'm interested to find out how you came to writing because you, you and I have something in common in that we're, we're former English teachers. Now, were you <laughs> secondary or primary? I was, I was primary. I actually taught in college, so FE colleges in the UK. So I taught, um, I taught quite a few things in the, only about, I worked as a teacher about five years. I taught English GCSE. I taught, um, you know, people have to do access courses Mm -hmm. when they're adults and want to go to university, but they maybe don't have the A-levels to get in. Um, So I used to teach on that and I was a course leader on that. And I also taught teaching for a while. So (laughs) I did a few things, yeah, and and sort of teaching people from the age of 16 up to 60 something. So did that have anything to do with your kind of love for writing? I guess it was more sort of technical language rather than creative language. Um, I got to do a bit of both, probably um, more like, you know, English literature type stuff. But sometimes, yeah, I would teach creative writing type units. So that was always you know, uh, those are ones I look forward to teaching, really. Um, yeah, but yeah, more from the literary analysis, you know, taught things like Dracula and, and Shakespeare and stuff like that, really. One of the fascinating things on your CV, your writer CV, <laughs> is that you're also a, a corsetier. Is that how you say it? Is yeah, that corsetier, right? yeah. A corsetier. <laughs> so how does one become a corsetier? Well, um, I know a lot of them now, having done it for a while. And say every single one of them is a different path, a bit like with writers. We all come at it from a different way. Um, I'd been sewing for a few years and when I actually trained to become a teacher, obviously I didn't have time to do it. So I thought, oh, I need to do an evening class to make myself make time 
to sew. Um, and I'd heard about this one that a local college was doing, which was corsetry and bra making. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a challenge. You know, I wanted to try and take my skills up to the next level. So I did a city and guilds in it in, in, um, in the evenings. And then you get a bit of a bug for it. Well, fantastic. So uh, as a, uh, now, I, I, you and I met online, so to speak, mm. on Twitter, in that you were doing posts and uh, you, you just got married, which I should officially give you congratulations for. We did, <laughs> we did say beforehand, but uh, congratulations. And uh, we've oh, been following you. your pictures online. But but, but for me, um, the build up to the, to the wedding has been you you sewing this splendid wedding dress, which you also, thank you, shared with us. I've put it on your page, by the way, so that people can see it. But um, it, this was quite some work of art. Uh, you know, this isn't just running up something with a, with a, a needle and thread. This is really quite <laughs> complex stuff. So um, are you on uh, dummies and things like that? Is it real serious stuff? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all. And also, I did um, really appreciate you mentioning me in the podcast diaries the other week after uh, after the big day. So thank you. Um, and for keeping me company, because I was listening to your podcast whilst doing all the mad sewing. Um, but yeah, so I do try, I'm, I don't want to say I'm perfectionist, because I don't think I'm quite that bad. But if I do something, I like to do it to a high level. So, or try, try my best to do it to the highest level I can. Um, so yeah, you know, this was silk, you know, proper silk fabric. I've got tailor's dummies. I've got a high level sewing machine. You know, I've poured a lot of time into, if, you know, if I'm going to work on a project, yeah, I've poured a lot of time into it. Um, although I did actually get into sewing through my writing in a strange way. Um, the reason I started sewing is actually because I'm quite obsessed with like the 18th century. I find it a really interesting era. And that is the era that I write in a fantasy version of, if you like. Mm. Um, and, I, and part of it is, you know, things like carnival and things like that and the, the costumes and all of that. So as well as sort of researching it to write, I was also like, wow, these costumes are amazing. And I'd love to go to Venice Carnival one day. But when I started looking at how much costumes are for that, I was like, how much? So I thought, I better start learning to sew now. And then by that time, I'll be able to make something amazing for Venice Carnival. So they kind of both uh, have a similar influence in them, writing and my sewing as well. So I know I know more than anyone should about 18th century clothing. <laughs> now, the Venice Carnival, is this the one where they all wear the, the masks and the wigs and everything? Yes. Is that one? Oh, that's yeah. splendid, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly that. And that's, like I said, that's the era that I kind of base my writing on, even though it's a fantasy. I write in a kind of fantasy version of Europe, but it's based on like late 18th century. Yeah, so with the big white wigs and the, um, they call them stays, but we would call them corsets now and the massive dresses and over the top kind of Marie Antoinette's age, really. So this is obviously your thing. You like this it's wonderful dress. So does that mean you're also a lover of things like, uh, you know, costume dramas? Do you, are you a Poldark fan and things like that? Do you, do you get into all of these things? Yes, I do like a costume drama, definitely. I've been watching, um, I'm not up to date on Outlander at the moment, but yeah, Outlander is a, a current favourite, definitely. Um, I definitely overwatched the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice uh, I used to have that. On, well, I have got it somewhere on DVD, so I watched that way too many times when I was at uni. So yeah, I do love a costume drama. 
<laughs> so when, when with, with all of this, you've got all this lovely creative background then. I'm interested uh, to know, when did this move in the general direction of writing, this desire to, to, to produce a book? Mm. It's, I always changed my mind as a kid about what I wanted to do when I was older, but writing was always there. I just, it wasn't something your career advisor would give you as an option, if you like, because it wasn't like it was a job you could go and apply for. So, I mean, I sat down to write for the first, you know, outside of school, you know, you, you had to write stories at school and stuff like that, didn't you? But the first time I sat down to write, I was about 12 years old and wrote a major Terry Pratchett ripoff, you know, and got, I don't know, 10, 20,000 words in or something like that. Wow. Um, I kind of did all that sort of stuff when I was younger, but never, ever finished anything. Um, when I went to uni, I actually planned to be an illustrator so I could kind of work with books from a slightly different angle. Um, and at the end of the first year, I actually switched course to join their creative writing course because they just started doing that at the university and I wasn't happy on the course I was doing. Um, so obviously I wrote a lot during that. So yeah, I got a, a BA in creative writing and, and had still, and had, you know, even before I joined that course, I had been still trying to write and still not finishing a novel hmm. um, and writing a bit of terrible poetry as well. So, you <laughs> know, like any, that, yeah. <laughs> like any self-respecting teenager, exactly. <laughs> super, super melodramatic poetry um, <laughs> that you have to make sure it's buried away so no one will ever see it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did that and then um, worked, you know, I had to get a full-time job after that Uh and as many people find, you know, it's hard to make time in real life when you're, you know, doing a full-time job, trying to pay the bills, etc. Um, so after a couple of years of working, I did my, I went back to uni and did my MA. So I sort of used that as an excuse and a way of funding um, going part-time at work. Um, so that when I did my master's, that was actually when I sat down and started the story that's going to be coming out soon um of a thief and a gentlewoman um so I actually started that yeah quite a while ago now um so yeah I, I suppose there's not really one moment I can say is when I started writing books or wanting to write books it was a, a constant um something that just kept pulling me back over the years you know I might go I might go a year or two years or something without writing but I still go back to it. Now, I'm interested uh, because you've done a an MA and a BA. So a couple of questions. I just want to dig into that. So mm. um, the, the the BA, um, I, I'm surprised that, that I know that MA is often, the whole point of the MA is often to create a finished work of art. With, with, it was a writing <laughs> MA, was it? Yes. Yeah. So my BA is English and creative writing. Mm. And the MA, yeah, is purely creative writing. So with the BA then, what sort of um, skills did you learn in there? Because you said you didn't have a, a book at the end of it. So I'm, I'm wondering what they taught through a, a BA. I've never spoken to somebody who did a writing BA before. Yeah, they seem a lot less common or I think they've become more so, but um, compared to people doing MAs, definitely. Um, so it would be things like you had to kind of get grounding, you know, your first year is, is you workshopping and sort of getting those uh, base skills, if you like, in uh, in script writing, in 
prose, fiction and non-fiction, in poetry. So you kind of, if you like, did introductory modules to all of those areas uh, for the creative writing side. And I actually found it really complemented and was complemented by the English literature side, you know, because as you're studying literature, you're learning from the techniques that they used. Um, so, yeah, that, those two definitely complemented each other. And then you would, you know, like you would with any degree, you get to start choosing specific modules and you can start to specialise a bit more. So I tended towards the um, poetry and the uh, prose fiction side of things. But we also did sort of quite journalistic pieces as well. Um, my dissertation was, what do they call it, a special exercise. Uh, so you had to produce... And you could do this as poetry, you could do it as prose fiction, you could do it as prose non-fiction, or you could do it as a as a screenplay. Um, but you had to write the equivalent of 10,000 words uh, create, of your creative work. Um, and mine was poetry, so I think I had to produce, I think it was about 25 poems. But obviously, with poetry, you kind of hack it down so that every word has really earned its place there. Um, and then you also had to write, several thousand words I can't remember exactly um about your process and about uh, the decisions you made while you're working the drafting I think you had to include things like some of your earlier drafts of a piece to show what you changed in it how you worked through it and things like that so kind of almost like a bit of a justification and an explanation of what you were doing that's a pretty good process to learn actually that that revision process that that mm. sounds quite handy but you you moved from poetry uh, and abandoned it. Why, why did you abandon the, the, the poetic side of you? Um, yeah, my dissertation equivalent, the special exercise, was in poetry, but I did also produce um, a YA, funny enough, vampire and werewolf story at the same time that Twilight was coming out. Mine, I'd sort of started mine and I was like, oh, hang on a second. Um, so I had, it had always been those two alongside each other for me. Uh, poetry I kind of do, or did, I don't do it anymore really, for myself and for, um, I suppose for the academic side, whereas the, yeah, it was kind of more of an academic thing and kind of a, a way of, uh, not, and it sounds like it's therapy, but you know, sort of a way of, of sort of getting some things on the page for myself, and um, sort of out of my own head. Whereas the prose is is just something I really enjoy, and um, and just writing fiction. You know, I've always been a massive reader, so that was always you know I wanted that. I wanted to just one day see my name on a book on a shelf somewhere. So it kind of came back to that when I was free to do what I wanted, I suppose, if you see what I mean. Mm, yeah. And, and with, with the MA, I know, um, I know a few people who've done MAs and they sound, mm. I mean, I think, I think the MA itself often is, is the finished, is the finished work. It's like a novel or something like that, the whole process. But I also mm. know that some MAs are quite general in the way that your degree was, that they introduce you to, to many parts of writing, like screenwriting mm -hmm. and, you know, poetry and things like that. So, so what, how did your MA move things on for you as a writer? Um, a bit like I said earlier, how when I did that corsetry course, it was to make me make time for it. So 
my MA, I think I did one or two years after I'd finished my BA. So, yeah, in that you could do a screenplay, you could do poetry, you could do prose nonfiction, you could do fiction, you could do any of those options. But I think actually everyone ended up on on my year of the course ended up doing fiction now I think of it um but yeah for that you had to produce the first 40,000 words of a novel and again produce a sort of separate essay with some justification and talking about the drafting process and things like that as well as doing um a couple of more academic essays and some presentations as well and we had to do a bit of a sort of pitch presentation on our um idea for the story sort of when we first came up with it so for me it was partly about right I can get some funding towards my MA and uh they'd planned it so that you did it all on a I think it was a Wednesday afternoon or something so I just ended up sort of going a bit part-time on work and sort of did that um but yeah like I said it made it made me make time for writing in you know working in the real world and it was it was very much like workshoppy so you'd have your teaching but then we also sort of formed this little bit of a writers group as well so you were kind of getting not only tutor feedback but feedback from colleagues on the course and you re- that really helped us advance a lot as well I think um so it kind of took it up to a high level but also yeah made me sort of focus in on on getting those 40,000 words done and 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 polished and in really. And was self-publishing seen as uh, a viable option as, as part of the MA? Or was it all aspiring to be traditionally published? Well, I did my MA. I think I've got this right. I think it was between 2008 and 2009. So really, what, the Kindle first came out in the US, I want to say... Is it 2007, something like that, maybe? Mm, around that time, yes. Around yeah. that sort of time. So really, like the Kindle wasn't even out in the UK yet. Um my only contact with publish uh, with, with self publishing had been and and also while I was doing my BA, I didn't mention this, I you know, I was planning to go and work in publishing. Um I'd done work experience at publishing houses as well. Uh, like Random House and people like that, their children's books divisions and things places like that. So to me, there was only one option. It was going the trad route. And I hate to say it, but when I first heard about self-publishing, I was that, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but I was that beep, who was like, self-publishing, it's just vanity press. Because when I had been growing up as a teenager and being like, yeah, I'm going to work in publishing and write my books on the side, blah, 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 it, it was just vanity publishing, really. Um, there were a few sort of exceptions where you maybe had people who wrote local interest books and things like that. So I wasn't you know I'd had I had no idea that it was gonna the world was gonna head in this direction and and really what the possibilities were because it wasn't a better deal for you then like it is now um although funnily enough one of my tutors on the course had self-published some of his own work and that was through Pete that was through like Lulu back in that time so this was back in the you know 2000s he brought out books through Lulu and self-published those that was very much self-publishing uh, version one, I think, mm. which is where you used to get 5,000 copies printed and then you'd get rid of Ted to family and then the other <laughs> 4,990 would gather dust in the, in the loft or in the, you know, rot away in the garage. So I, I, I think 
you know, it's important when, because I think we were probably all the same when we, we, we poo-poo self-publishing. I think that's probably what we meant when it was a fairly, mm. in those days, it was generally seen as a fairly self-indulgent thing that, that you got this book, whether it was good or bad, out of your system. And, and then you, you bought a load of copies that you never got rid of. That was the typical experience, I think, in those days. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think because um, because I'd read up a lot on the publishing industry because I'd wanted to go and work in it as an editor, um, obviously, you know, you look at all these things, um, warnings you'd get on forums online and in even even in books about the publishing industry and articles and things like that. that was, you know, don't don't give these people your money as an author. The money should flow to you. It shouldn't be you paying someone else to publish, to print your book. It's, you know, they're ripping you off because, you know, they give promises about they'll help you market and things like that. And they don't. Like you say, they sit in a warehouse somewhere or your garage if you've got them shipped to you. And, and that would be it, really. So that was that was what I had grown up knowing. Um, and like I said, even 2008, 2009, I was a bit of a... I was a bit closed-minded, I suppose, because that tutor that I mentioned, his was published through Lulu, so herself published through Lulu, so it was print on demand. Um, I don't think that he really sold many copies because there, there wasn't the um, that scale that we've got now with publishing through ebooks, you know, directly through Amazon and Kobo and people like that. That 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 wasn't there yet. Or at least I, you know, certainly that I, not that I was aware of, and not over in the UK as well. Maybe the US was starting to wake up to it more. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, like you said, it was right. Pay me, pay me ten thousand pounds, and I will print your book, and you'll be a published author. And look, you'll have this to show your friends. And uh, yeah, it was it, certainly in, in my mind. I saw it as a bit of a, you know, they were ripping off people who wanted to see their uncle's memoirs maybe or this story idea they'd had um they wanted to see it in print and and it felt like a way of preying on people i think as well yeah and, and of course a lot of those companies still exist even though it's a lot yeah. easier to to do all of this nowadays yeah to, you know it's, i i think these days it's fairly it's very hard if you connect yourself with a reasonable group like the 20 books which we'll talk about later mm. um it's fairly hard not to be able to produce a book and at least make some sales uh, mm. a handful of sales even and not to family members too so uh, things have improved i think uh, a lot since then oh you know it's a different you know i think that's 10 years ago 2008 when i started my ma that is a world away from where we are now you know i always thought you know i'll have to have a day job and then i'll write on the side and try and get a publishing deal and we'll see what happens i'll try and get an agent you know um, i get good enough grades i know i'm not terrible at this but you know, it is it, you know, there's a slice of luck and a slice of getting chosen with that approach, and and that was the only possible option back then. Whereas now, I'm like, no way, no way am I submitting my stuff to you know, as an agent, I, to an agent, I would consider high, you know, going hybrid in future as as part of a wider strategy, but no way would I choose the purely trad route nowadays. What then happened between finishing the MA and then at that stage aspiring to the traditional kind of publishing route to to, to where we are now, where the, fir- the first self-published book's on its way? What, did you write in between that period or did real life get in the way? What what happened in the intervening period? Yeah, um, yeah, a bit of both. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, immediately after my master's, we moved up to Nottingham. Um, I did my 
um, MA down on the south coast. Uh, so we moved up here, had to get a job that was terrible. And mm. <laughs> um, so did that for a year and was it was enough to just try and get through the day. I did kind of, you know, I'd keep opening the um, the Word file because I think I didn't even know about Scrivener then. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd open the Word file every once in a while and be like, come on, let's try and get some more words down. And that maybe last a few days and then the... Uh, the horror of the day job kind of and, and the, you know, the, the getting through just everyday life thing got in the way again and sort of dragged me under a bit, really. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, yeah, after, after that year of that awful job, um, I ended up, that was when I trained to be a teacher. And as you all understand, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of former teachers in writing. So hello to all of you. You'll all get this. And that is that training to be a teacher and being a teacher are really bloody hard. It's a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, again, I didn't I didn't have time and, and not just the literal physical time, because we all have the same amount of that, I know, but the mental bandwidth to deal with that. You know, I, I in when I first started teaching, I was teaching some very challenging students you know these were 16 17 18 year old construction students so generally classrooms full of young lads who didn't want to have to do English lessons but they had to because they hadn't passed their GCSE in it um so yeah I didn't really write for quite a while and like I said every so often I'd pick out come on come on Claire you've got to do this and it would last a while and then I'd, I'd get dragged away um until three almost exactly three years ago um yeah it was eight I think it was about April because it was Easter kind of time three years ago I was still teaching I'd worked up I was like a, a course leader uh, I was teaching some university level classes so you know I'm I always had sort of good observations and things you know I always did well in it but um had a bit of a health scare and I was absolutely fine went to the doctors obviously in my head I'm like oh my god I'm definitely dying because I'm that kind of person <laughs> um get to the doctors and they check me over and they're like oh no it's just this you're fine and I was like oh oh okay and I remember the day really clear. it was the day a bit like today it's a lovely sunny day came out into the spring sunshine and I thought oh phew but what if I had been bad news what if the doctor had said to me, oh, you know, sorry, you know, we have to go for some tests, but you've got six months or a year to live or something. You know, what would what would my regrets be? What would I want to spend the rest of that time doing? And I was like, well, the big thing was I'd want, you know, I'd regret not having a book out there. I'd, I'd finish the book and get that out there with my name on it. Wow. I, um, you're, when you were talking about teaching there, so there's, there's a lot in there that I want to dive into. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, no, that's right. The first thing was is that you brought back teaching nightmares to me when you were describing <laughs> that group of students who didn't want to learn. And yeah. uh, there's nothing um, in, in office jobs. Um, you can kind of come and hide away if you don't like the job and, and, mm. and kill a bit of time. But teaching's very immediate, isn't it? And and, mm. and you're confronted by it all the time. So that brought back uh, the nightmare. I understand what you what you mean too by the time because I have never. I mean, I haven't talked for years now, but I've never worked as hard as when I did when I was a teacher. Mm. Uh, absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, Even sorry, the, I should have given a trigger warning before talking yeah, about that, shouldn't yeah, I? <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I, mean, I bet you still have classroom nightmares, don't you? Do, do you still have them when you're teaching and, and it's all going wrong? Um, do you know what? I don't think I ever had that because 
I would never, I would never, do you know, I'd never take back teaching. I would never say that that was a mistake and I shouldn't have done it. And I would never, if I had my time again, I would still make that same decision simply because that year that I did that training, because I was teaching um, functional skills to these construction students. Like I said, they were really challenging students. I had, you know, we had some interesting behavior <laughs> to deal with and behavior management, but it changed who I was because it made me a much more confident person because I was like, bloody hell, if I can deal with this, I can deal with anything. Yeah, I'm so the same, I, it yeah. never, yeah, it never gave me nightmares because in a way I went through the worst, you know, I didn't, I didn't have anything really terrible, you know, I didn't have anyone throw a chair at me, but I had some tense moments where I had to face down a guy that was, you know, twice, I'm only five foot three, you know, face down a young man who is like a foot taller than me. You don't, you can't flinch because, you know, that's when they get you. But yeah, I thought, you know, well, the, the worst times actually happened, if, if you see what I mean. So I didn't ever have nightmares about teaching, no. <laughs> well, oh, you're very lucky. When I when I started teaching after um, university, I took over from a teacher who'd been driven to a nervous breakdown by this oh. class. So I came in at the last yeah. minute and the three sort of perpetrators of this had created, I mean, this is primary school, for goodness sake, they, they had created a an operation centre in the corner, you know, with, with desks from which they created chaos in the classroom. So um, the first thing I had to do was sort all that out, which, which yeah. was great. And I ended up getting they, my first job because I survived, just because I survived. And they're, uh, and they're riding high on their triumph against the other teacher at that time as well, I bet. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, very fun days. Yeah, but like, but like you, you see... I don't regret doing that. I'm pleased mm. I moved on, but I'm also pleased I did it. So mm. I think I think the I think the problem comes when you stay in something that you don't want. And this then brings me back to your health scare. That <laughs> the health scare probably gave you the kind of kick that you needed to say, mm. actually, you know, if that had been a genuine health issue, um, I'm not where I want to be. So mm. therefore, I need to get where I want to be. Is that is that a right interpretation of that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there there'd been things I wasn't happy with. Um, don't get me wrong, as well. Like it was, I'd say it's definitely the most fulfilling job I've ever had, as well. You know, you, you know there were people, particularly working in uh, with in FE College. You know, I was working in. You know, give people a second chance to maybe, um, like I say, go to university and things like that. So. I always had that tension between it was very fulfilling and with things that I really enjoyed about it, but there were things that were, like you said, you know, really draining, things I wasn't happy with. Um, you know, so it would, I think if, yeah, that hadn't happened, it would have been hard for me to to turn away from it. Yeah, definitely. But it still takes courage, even if you've had a health scare, it mm. still takes courage to burn some bridges and to say, right, I'm going to give this a go, because at least I've got it out of my system. How, how did it sort of have to change your life then to, to put that in play? Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. I think as well, the fact that you've gone, yeah, I definitely want to be a teacher, and you go through your teacher training, and then you've got to kind of go to everybody. Uh, yeah, I was wrong about that, actually. You know, mm. that that is... It is a difficult thing to do. It's definitely a challenge. I um, so that was uh, yeah. It was, it was around Easter time, so it was about sort of April. So I set myself the task, even though I was still working as a teacher. I was like, right, I'm going to finish. It was coming up to my now husband's thirtieth birthday, and he's always been like super supportive and always, you know, was always saying, oh, come on, you know how's the writing going? How's the book? You know, not pressuring me, but definitely really supportive. So I thought, 
oh, do you know what? I'll get him. I'll get him a thirtieth birthday present. But as a as a bonus, I'm going to get this this first draft of this book finished and give him a USB with it done as a surprise. So almost like a, an extra little something, you know, to sort of say thank you for for always supporting me. And and when I told him that I, I was going to leave teaching, he was a okay with that. So yeah, that April into May, I wrote the last. I think it was about 40,000 words of the book that I had left to do. Um, so, yeah, I just powered through it. I remember the last night, it was the night before his 30th birthday, I wrote, I just sat there after work and was like, duh, 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 on the keyboard, because this was before I discovered dictation or anything as well. Um, yeah, I wrote 4,000 words in one evening after having worked all day as well. So that was kind of the first step. And, and I kind of needed to do that, I think, because I'd spent all those years starting different stories and never finishing them and that time you know I finished a 120,000 word novel at last you know in my in my 30s I'd finally done it well wait yeah and I I really think that you've got you've got to force yourself to the end because once you've got to the end you just have to do it again and again and again with future books you know you can get to the end I I really feel that's the biggest accomplishment to to get to that end bit absolutely yeah yeah and um, people say that about running. Um, you almost need to prove to your body that you can do it, that you can run 5K or, or whatever distance. And, uh, yeah, I definitely say it's the same because I've, I've completed the, the first draft of the prequel novella. I don't have any of the the sort of mental, sort of psychological problems and sort of blocks on myself that I did when I was all those years when I was sort of trying and stopping and trying and stopping and, you know, being when I was a teenager and, and would sort of rear off and things like that. Definitely. I didn't have any of those problems that time because like you said, I'd proved to myself I could do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you've got to know that you, as you say, like with a run, your body can make it to the end. And <laughs> then the next time you do it, you try and improve your speed all the time. You're trying mm. to get better all the time and faster mm-hmm. and more efficient. That's I think what uh, writing is about, but it mm. can't begin until you finish the first one. I don't exactly. Think. That's the big, almost the biggest journey in, in, in a certain, to a certain extent. Um, yeah. Just explain where you are with the stories, because the the story that you've kind of gone on Insta Freebie that you publicise is a thief and a gentlewoman. So, mm-hmm. uh, is, is that what you were writing the 120k words for? Yes. Yeah. So I finished that draft of that in that May. Um, so that is yeah the first book of a a planned trilogy. It's um, but I do have ideas for future trilogies returning to those characters um just because series is a good idea right <laughs> it is a good idea yes yeah. um yeah and i've and uh so i've i've written the so i finished that first draft of that and so i was like whoo and it was like right so how do i edit this this mm. beast then um so i spent quite some time trying to get my head around that really uh i did do an online course in editing and i didn't get on with it um, and this was, you know, substantive developmental self-editing. So it wasn't just, you know, proofreading. Uh, being, being a former English teacher, I'm not too bad at that, if I do say so myself. But um, no means perfect, but my drafts tend to be pretty clean. Um, but yeah, no, this was about getting your characters, your plot and everything right. And I didn't get on with the course I did. And actually, some of the things I was trying to force myself to do because of the course actually slowed, slowed down my editing um, because I was like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't like editing. I hate this. And it just, 
you know, I'm sure it worked, you know, there are other people it worked really well for. I'm not going to name the course or, or the teacher or anything, but I just did, it, it wasn't right for me. And I, I should have listened to myself actually and gone, maybe I need to read through this course, not follow it word for word and pick out the bits that, that are right for me and just do those rather than, because I was trying to force myself to slavishly follow it. And I think that was a mistake. So that definitely slowed me down. Um, yeah, so that that sort of has sort of happened over the past sort of three years since I did complete that uh, first draft. I also did a NaNoWriMo where I wrote the first 50,000 words of the second book. Um, and then at the end of over last year, I wrote the prequel novella, which is going to be my reader magnet as well. So I've kind of got bits and pieces written ahead without having quite finished editing the first one yet. <laughs> well, this always interests me because um, I'm always itching to get mine out. So I, I like to get the things released. And, and I've, I th- I'm mm. trying to think who else. Somebody else has, has done similar to you where they've, they're kind of waiting. They're keeping their powder dry until they release um, the book, until they've got the kind of prequel and the, and the sequel. And I sort of think, oh, I don't think I'd have the patience for that. I just need to, I need to bang them out and get them going. So... Um, when when will you have something that's out there that could then be sold well i am not patient enough to do this i've got three books done i'm not that person like i i am like come on let's get it out but um i think the reason that i wrote did that nanowrimo and wrote started writing the sequels because i was having such a headache with the editing of book one and it was coming up to november and i was like do you know what i think i feel like i've got drafting I've kind of got it now because I started using Pomodoros and I found all these techniques that worked really well for me. And, and I was drafting, you know, that, like I said, I wrote 40,000 words in the space of a few weeks when I got that first draft finished. So I was like, yeah, I've, I've kind of got my head around this. Let's do this. I know how to do for a while and then come back to the editing. That was kind of the, the rationale behind that. Um, but I do want, what I was kind of trying to rush with book one to get that out first I was like oh I'll get it out by the end of 2017 and then the editing was just taking me so long um I ended up going having a developmental editor and she gave me fantastic feedback um and this was after I'd already edited two beta readers feedback as well um you know because this is you know Susan K Quinn talks about the books you write for the money and the books that you write that are of your heart and this is definitely a book of my heart Hopefully I'll make some money as well, but it's kind of the book I needed to write. Um, and so I want it to be the best I can make it. So I could maybe have released it an edit ago, you know, the last version of it, you know, could have gone out there and been fine. But I'm making those changes because I just want to make it that bit better. <laughs> so I'm, I was trying to rush it and then I was trying to rush to get it out before 20 books uh, back in February, so if I can just get these final 30 scenes edited, you know, I can get it out before then, and then I'll be going to the conference as a proper writer, you know, with a book out kind of thing. But it was just taking me so long in each scene. It, I was like, that's not going to happen, is it? And I kind of need to get this wedding dress done as well. Um, so, yeah, that didn't work out. And, and I thought, you know what, I need to give both of these projects, the wedding dress and the book, the time and effort and focus that they deserve. You know, I don't want either of them to be half-assed, basically. So I, I kind of went, yeah, let's let's just put the book to the side. There's no, there's not actually a need for me to rush this out. Let's get focus on the dress, make that amazing. 
we'll come back to the the book when I come back from the honeymoon. So, um, and I've kind of reevaluated further. And actually, what I, although I'm not going to wait until I've got three books ready, because like I said, I don't have that patience. What I am going to do is wait until I've also got the novella edited and ready. So I'll release book one, and then it will have in the back the link to my mailing list to get the exclusive novella as a free download. So the novella won't be available in the shops. You won't be able to buy that on Amazon or through Kindle Limited or anything. You will only be able to get that by joining the mailing list. And the fact that you're even talking about those things tells me that you're also immersed in learning. I know you listen to my podcast and I know you listen to other podcasts too. So while you've been doing this, um, strangely, you've transitioned from that aspiring author who wanted to be traditionally published Mm. to a a very um, keen self-published author, that's the way you want to go, who also Mm. knows a thing or two about marketing um, (laughs) because you know all the little tricks about the links in the back and things like that. So when did you start to kind of learn the marketing side of things as well? Um, I would say some of it I've maybe done too soon. And by that I mean... Actually, what I've realized is, you know, when I was talking about that I was rushing to try and get out before the end of last year and stuff like that. So I was starting to look at all launch strategies and all of this sort of thing and and reading up on it in my lunch break, maybe at work or while I'm on the bus on my phone and stuff like that. And um, and actually what I should have been doing was in my lunch break, and, and I did do this in some lunch breaks, was drafting and editing. Because um, actually now the stuff that I read back then, six months ago plus, is out of date anyway you know the the marketing side of things and certain strategies can become out of date quite quickly so I think some of it I maybe got a bit too excited overexcited about and over eager about a bit too soon but um yeah over those when I when I had that um that healthcare three years ago I started I was like right I'm taking this seriously this can be my focus now and this is I'm going to make this my my job and, and my life kind of thing so you know, I started listening to podcasts and things like that, and and you know, it became all a bit of a a um, you know snowboard. So I'd listen to the Creative Pen podcast, and then from there, I'd hear her interview people, and I'd go and listen to their podcast. So you know, I, I listen to you, I listen to that, I listen to um, the Worried Writer, the Self Publishing Formula podcast, um, and various others as well. So I listen to those on my way to and from work and, and, and I've sort of just started, you know, I've just done that over the past two or three years uh, alongside working on my craft and, and my stories and things like that. So I've sort of learned those things along the way, as well as reading, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the 20 books to 50K Facebook group, read up on things on keyboards. Um, the other one that I did find really useful, what I do find really useful, is actually Mark Dawson's SPF 101 course. So that's, um, there were a lot of things in there that I had read about elsewhere or heard about elsewhere, but I found that really useful to help me put that together in more of a cohesive strategy if that makes sense and and sort of as a good blueprint if you like of like look do these things and this will help get you started so yeah and I, I signed up for that in the first intake of that actually which was I want to say not October last year but the year before mm-hmm. so that was what gave me the idea to even start writing the prequel novella um so yeah so I've sort of immersed myself in that 
alongside doing everything else over the year, the past two or three years or so. We met in person at 20 Books, which was, I think, mm. was, it, was it February? It feels, feels like it's It was the beginning now. of February, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. So, it so, seems like longer ago than that. Doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, yeah. Now, that I, I was kind of billing that as the indie event of the year. Um, do you think it lived up to that hype that I gave it? Well, you know, like, you are responsible for me going, really. Oh, Paul. am I? Oh, sorry about that. I hope it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... I don't think I'd even heard of the group. I think it was you talking about, I was like, oh, what's this group? Let's go and check them out. So I joined the Facebook group and, and hearing you talk about it, especially when you mentioned that you'd found the cheaper hotel, I was like, oh, maybe I could actually go to this. It's a lot cheaper than I was expecting. I mean, you mentioned how, you know, marketing, internet marketing conferences and things you'd been to were so expensive. And I'd been to, uh, there's actually a corsetry conference um, or a couple now, I think, and, you know, that would cost more than 20 books to 50K had. So I was like, okay, let's go then and see. And, I, you know, it's fantastic. That I, I, Again, I wish that I'd, been able, I'd, I'd done it in a time where I didn't have these sort of other things on my mind. Um, because, you know, I did come away and then I had to go, oh, I, need, I want to work on all of this stuff that I've just learned about. But I was like, I need to go and sew a corset for my wedding dress. But, um, and... Sorry, listeners, but if you want to play a drinking game every time I mention corset or wedding, do feel free to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but no, I, I thought the event was fantastic. And um, I found the talks really useful, but also, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people would say the same, the opportunity to network. You know, there are people I spoke to, like like said, you know, we'd spoken a bit on, on Twitter and sort of said hi and things like that. But, you know, we got to have a sit down on uh, in the bar was it on the Saturday night, I think it was, wasn't I think it? Was it? A Saturday, yes. And, and the people I met there, you know, that I'm now, I've got on my Facebook friends list, and I send them a message and sort of say, oh, you know, I saw this and thought of you, or, um, you know, there are already people that I've I've connected with further online that are even saying things like, you know, when your book comes out, I'll happily share it with my mailing list. Uh, there are people who gave me their cards and they're like, oh, you know, give me a shout and things like that, and, um. And even just having them on my Facebook feed now, you know, I can check in on what they're doing and things like that. And it's, yeah, it's been incredibly useful, definitely. Yeah, the networking, I think, is, you can't put a value on, on a <clears throat> network like that, I don't think. And the other thing I felt really strongly in 20 books, um, and I said it on my podcast diary summary afterwards, is that I um, got a real sense that I was in the room with my kind of people. And mm. you know when you said earlier about there are a lot of people who publish by Lulu and who want to traditionally publish, but actually mm. I did feel that all those people in that room held the same authorial aspirations. Did you did you get that kind of feeling when you were there? Yeah, these these were people who wanted to self-publish and wanted to do it professionally and have a professional finished piece that, you know, that book, when it's on the shelf, whether it's in Amazon or if they had it in an actual bookshop, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and something that was published by Galanx or someone like that, you know. And I was like, yeah, this is more like it. Because sometimes, you know, in I've kind of been stung where I've been in certain Facebook groups and and people are like, oh, can anyone share my book? And I'm like, you know, they seem really nice people. Their book kind of sounds interesting. And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't mind sharing it on Twitter maybe. And then... They're like, oh, yeah, well, here's, here's a link to my cover and stuff. And then you look at the cover and you're just like, what is that? You know, this looks like something that someone 
you know, a web page from 1993 that someone's posted with Comic Sans in a lime green font on a black background. You've seen <laughs> my I'm website like, then, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the retro look. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, you know I, was, I was, my dad was quite an early adopter of, of PCs and the internet and stuff. So I was on, you know, I was on there from quite an early age. And, and I'm like, you know, really, people, why? You need to... You need to do something professional because it just looks, it's embarrassing to produce such a sort of low quality looking work. And and I don't quite get how people think they're going to get the success with something like that. I do understand that obviously everyone has a budget. Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm really lucky in that our day jobs have allowed me to invest in that developmental editor and my um, cover there is by Stuart Bache. Um you know, like I know you've now gone to him for recovers, and obviously the recommendation to me came from Mark Dawson through the SPF 101 course. And I do understand everyone has a budget, but it's not difficult to look on Amazon and look at book covers and pick out, you know, what does it like a professional book cover and does yours look like that, yes or no? Um, whereas in that room, I was like, oh, yeah, these are people who are taking this seriously and are looking at the book covers on Amazon and are looking at what is selling and are really quite honestly comparing their own stuff to that rather than thinking, you know, deluding themselves that their unprofessional product, whether it's the content or the cover or both, really is comparable and really is going to be successful. So, yeah, that was my, like I said, I try and do things to a high standard as much as I can. Um, not saying I do, but I try to do it the high standard I can. And I felt like those people in that room had the same attitude as well. You mentioned uh, earlier in the interview that you use dictation, um, something that I know I've got, I must get round to doing, but I haven't done. How, how are you getting on with it? You sound like you just picked it up and ran with it by the sounds of it. Um, obviously, I haven't been using it recently because I've been working on the editing side of things. Um, but yeah, so... When I start, so I started on that prequel novella at the beginning of last year, and um, I'd got my partner, now husband, to buy me a dragon for Christmas that, you know, just before that, just before that January. So I gave it a go. Um, I tried out working working with it sort of at, at my laptop, and also tried going out uh, walk for a walk because I live really close to um, a a big sort of uh, it's actually owned by the council but it's like kind of an old country house it's got a lovely park around it so going for a walk up there and recording on my phone um, so I did I did do a fair bit of it towards the beginning of last year and even though I felt I'd just started and even though I felt I was going really slow I was getting my best ever typing speed was just over 2,000 words an hour and that was I'd done loads of prep and um and you know was really quite far through the book whereas doing that i easily got i want to say about two and a half to three thousand words an hour wow well that's very impressive and is that with all the uh where you have to say a uh, new paragraph full stop open uh quote marks whatever it is you've got to say is it with all of that stuff going on as well um those particular times i think trying to remember now because i've actually read a really good book since then that um 
that kind of teaches you it teaches you how to dictate a bit better in, in a way that helps you get used to doing those things more um so I think when I go back to drafting again after uh, I've finished editing these two when I'm working on book two again I am actually going to try and stick to the basic instructions rather than trying to dictate every bit of punctuation um but I think that uh, back then I was I was doing full punctuation, yeah, including speech marks and everything. When we chatted at 20 books to 50k, we were talking about a podcast. I know you've got some initial plans to create a podcast. Is that coming to anything? Are you going to be launching it anytime soon? Uh, hopefully, the first episode at least should be out by the time this comes out, because I'm planning to record it over this bank holiday weekend. Um, but yeah, the idea behind it is it's going to be called Confessions of a First-Time Author, and it's going to be a bit like your uh, diary format, you know, just something quite short and sweet. And um, my plan is to share a bit of, you know, the experience of someone going through the self-publication process for the first time and and getting their work out there for the first time um as well as sharing you know some of the amazing tips and, and lessons that i've learned over the years whether it's from my ba my ma my mixing with the indie community and so on so you know every week i want to sort of talk about where i am in the process what i'm working on i want to be very honest and, and open and raw about the challenges that i'm facing um, and then share some tips, advice and, and things that I've found helpful to me, whether it's a book recommendation, a podcast or, like I said, a particular technique that I've tried. Um, so, yeah, I want to share those things with other people and, and try and sort of, you know, give back a bit to the community. You know, might be no one listens, but, you know, it might help somebody if it helps one other person. That's I'm, I'm happy with that. And where will we find that? It will be on clairesager.com, which is C-L-A-R-E-S-A-G-E-R, because I was born with a, a name that has both parts have to be spelt. So clairesager.com forward slash confessions. Our, our hour is up, but I, I must say to you now, um, you're now married. The dress mm. is completed. Everything <laughs> is out of the way that's going to obstruct you now from, from writing, <laughs> or at least for the time being. So do we have a launch date or aspiration now? for the book oh man you're gonna make me sort of give this as an exclusive now aren't you i am yeah <laughs> <laughs> um okay i don't i don't have a specific date but i think um my plan is to have the book and the prequel novella edited by the end of august so end of the summer i think should be a, f a fair time to call it as fantastic Great. Okay, so you're on record for saying that now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you also for your support on Twitter and for listening to the, uh, the you know, getting through the podcast diaries every week. And really good <laughs> luck with your, well, uh, congratulations on your, your new marriage and good luck with the launch of the book. It's been great talking to you today. Oh, thanks so much, Paul, for everything you do for us. Thank you very much for listening to this week's interview. I'll have another edition of Paul's Podcast Diary for you on Saturday, and my next author interview will be dropped into the podcast feed on Monday the 4th of June, when I'll be chatting to physics textbook writer and self-published whodunit and sci-fi author Miles Hudson. Now, Miles managed to fully fund his sci-fi novel on Unbound, so among other things, we'll be chatting about how he managed to do that. So, until next time, have a great week of writing. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. 
Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.